Heavenly Father, we want to know you more. Um, help us now to understand your word as we read 1 Thessalonians. Amen. Amen. So we'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 verse, um, verses 1 to 10. So Paul, Demas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. We, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, you really do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell you how you turned to God from idol to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, welcome to public meetings. Uh, for those of you who have not met me, my name is Paddy. Uh, the EU has invited me to come and spend the next three weeks unpacking the letter to the First Thessalonians. So I'm going to try and do that over the next couple of weeks. Let's just get rid of that screen there. No, we'll just get rid of that screen there. And we'll turn that off there. Uh, it'd be very helpful if you've got a copy of... Um, very helpful if you've got a copy of uh, 1 Thessalonians open in front of you. It'd be good if perhaps you just keep your Bible open so you can make sure that what I'm saying is actually what's in the text. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but um, when I sort of started at university, probably a little over, well, a few years ago now, uh, I really wasn't sure what to do with life. I'd, uh, I'd uh, went to a reasonably good independent boys' school. Uh, every so often you have to go in and see the school counsellor, the guidance counsellor was called then. You may have had a similar experience. Uh, I walked in and did all the psychometric testing and the guidance counsel said you could basically do anything you wanted to. Which for a male in about year 11 is of completely no help at all. Because uh, they're trying to sort of, uh, they're after direction and meaning in life. So I just assumed that then I would be able to do anything I wanted to. So I really didn't do any work going through school. Which meant when I got to the end of school I decided I'd do a science degree. Because uh, it just perpetuated the not really sure what to do with life type thing. Oh look, all the science students know that to be true. Uh, and I hadn't got the marks to really get into anything else. As I was going through uni, I um, ended up studying for eight years at University of New South Wales over the road, a fine educational institution. <laughs> Only one in the room. My goodness me, yesterday, oh, they were almost throwing things at me. Uh, I studied there for eight years, and along the way, I learnt lots of things, actually, uh, to, be, to be honest and fair, to the, our university education. I learnt lots of things about the world, uh, the way in which the world functions... But I actually thought it would do more for me than it actually did. I thought that university was the place that equipped you for life. And it taught me a whole lot of stuff, but it didn't actually teach me much about myself. It taught me a lot about my discipline. It didn't really teach me a lot about 
how to actually get a job. It sort of tried to prepare me for a particular sort of job. It didn't really teach me about how to relate better to people or how to love my siblings or get on well with my parents or... The words that I was hearing from the front sort of academically were doing stuff but not really holistically. Uh, my personal testimony is that the most powerful word which worked in me then very significantly and continues to do so to this day, that particular word that continues to mould and shape me, that shows me who I am, that word is actually the word of the Christian gospel. It actually started to instil in me a vision for future. A vision not just for me, but a vision for where the whole world is going. And I wonder whether or not some of you are at a similar stage of life. I suspect some of you are, because I've talked to you about these sorts of things. Some of you have tried to map out what the future will hold, which is why you mapped out your future path to be, get into Sydney University, and then get into this particular job. And, then, and some of you are now maybe recalibrating that, because you've realised among your peers that you're not actually the smartest person at Sydney University. You may have been the smartest person at school, but the pond is a lot bigger now. Hey, maybe some of you will win a university medal, in which case you can come back, send me a text message. <laughs> Anonymously, if you like. I was the smartest person at Sydney University. <laughs> Uh, complete aside, I do remember meeting a graduate a couple of years ago. He's left now, he's in the year. You're a very humble and godly guy. I said, hey, what's, your, what's your life goal? What's your life ambition? He said, I'm going to be the, the governor of the Reserve Bank. If you know anything about economics, you can't aim too much higher than that. Okay? So he had a particular vision for life. Maybe you're developing this vision for life, but maybe as you're going through university, you're realising that actually your vision for life is not quite as possible as you thought it first was and maybe as you look out on the world and the experiences that you have in the world and you the experiences you have of, uh, have of other people you're actually not really sure where the world is going where is the world heading to now you're young and enthusiastic and may have a very positive vision for the world and you'll say well this you know they're just sort of ups and downs they're bumps in the road at the moment and so I'll keep casting a vision for my life so you try and cast a vision for your life you've probably done this you've maybe looked at your parents and wondered how you can aspire to the standard of living that they gave to you. Maybe you look at your peers and you think, actually, I don't really want to aspire to the things that they're aspiring to for all sorts of reasons. Maybe you cast a vision for your life that appears insta-worthy. You have this grand sort of vision in your head about what your holidays will look like. And you get there and you turn up to this magnificent landscape and you go, you know what, actually, I think the photo was better. Have you done that before? Shame on you. Seriously, you reckon the photo is better than the real thing? Go and live life. Put the screen away. But I think we do this for our future, don't we? We have this vision which we really think, if only we can get to there, then fill in the blanks. You'll be happy, content. You will have succeeded. You'll be impressive to all of your peers. Then I could put that on Instagram. But for some of us, in reality, when we just start thinking about the future, it actually starts to unsettle us. Some of us leap into it and others of us go, actually, I'd really just rather just literally get through the rest of this week, let alone the rest of the semester. And so for some of us, we're a bit unsettled by the future and what it holds. But I think deep down we all crave some sort of certainty about the future. We long for greater clarity that everything will be okay we long for that security, the certainty. We long for the fact that we will make it in the end. Whenever that will be, wherever that will be, and whatever that may look like. Which is why I think in the sort of current climate, some of the stuff that Jordan Peterson is talking about, if you've watched some of his videos, um, if you've watched them and you found them attractive, I think he's getting some resonance with that sort of idea. 
There's a longing for more certainty. There's a longing for clearer, what do I do next in life? And for some people, what he's talking about is really very attractive. Well, over the next three weeks, as we look at 1 Thessalonians, I want to try and suggest to you and cast a, a more compelling vision, actually. And I want to cast the vision that is based on the God who created us, the God who knows us best, a vision that's based on the reality of where the world is heading and a vision that we as followers of the Lord Jesus, well, that vision may actually place us a bit out of step with where the rest of the world thinks they're going. But it's a vision that I want to show you over these next three weeks flows straight out of the pages of 1 Thessalonians. So if you turn to 1 Thessalonians, let me give you a brief overview. There's three broad themes that uh, are contained in the letter. So I'm just going to say this up front and we'll keep coming back to this in the next couple of weeks. The three broad themes, for those of you taking notes, are firstly the return of Jesus, secondly the salvation of God's people and thirdly a time of wrath or anger. That word wrath is just an old-fashioned way of saying anger. So firstly we see that it's God's intention that Jesus would return and it could be any day. Uh, We see this in a couple of different places. You see it in chapter 1 verse 10, we're commanded to wait for his son from heaven. You see it at the end of uh, chapter 3. Uh, just there in uh, verse 13, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. You see it in chapter 4, verse 16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven. And you see it in chapter 5, verse 23, that you may be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In such a short letter, it's only five chapters, Paul mentions it four times. It's a fairly sort of significant theme for him. The return of Jesus is imminent. Paul, some commentators would say, the Apostle Paul, thought that the Lord Jesus would return within his lifetime. How keen are you for Jesus to come back? Like, honestly. Because most of us say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm really keen for him to come back, but does the rest of life reflect that? Are you really keen for Jesus to come back? Now, for those of you who spent last week completely procrastinating, (laughs) oh, I've chatted with a couple of you, and you had three or four assessments that were due maybe this week sometime, some of you may have been praying the Lord would have returned before the assessments. (laughs) Oh, look, don't say that thought hasn't just entered your mind occasionally. Or at least the night before the exams, okay? But for those of you who were diligent, you might have said, no, Lord, just delay another day. What's another day? Let me hand in the assignment that I've successfully completed. But you can come back before I get the mark, because I'm really not sure I did a good job. Okay? (laughs) Like, how seriously are we about the return of Jesus? Paul is dead set serious here. In in fact, he says in chapter 4, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time, if you're feeling anxious or worried, if you need words of encouragement, what is it that you are to speak of? Speak of these things, he says, and that these things are the return of the Lord Jesus. Is that what you think about when you're feeling anxious or worried or concerned or stressed or, or do you think I should do better, I need to try harder? God, please help me. Now, actually, the underlying message here, which is one of encouragement, actually is the Lord's returning. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. It might be this afternoon. No matter how much I try and say it in an encouraging fashion, if it still doesn't make your heart leap just a little bit, let alone a whole amount, then I want to say you're yet to actually grasp how significant that is that the Lord is coming back, and it could be any day. Second big theme is regarding the salvation of God's people. God's intent is to save His people. You see it in chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 5, verse 9, 
And part of the reason why the Lord is coming back, actually, is that you and I, if we claim the name of Jesus, if we're believers, we might be saved. And I think at this point, this is why we're not really that keen for Jesus to come back, because you know what? I think for most of us, life is pretty good. Do you think you need saving from your life? Probably not, in your opinion. But Paul is pretty keen to say, in his second big theme across the letter, the Lord is returning, that God's people might be saved. And what is it particularly they're going to be saved from? This is the third big theme. The third thing they're going to be saved, the third big theme is that they're going to be saved from a time of wrath, a time of anger. Uh, This is consistent with the Old Testament pattern. We'll explore this next week, particularly uh, the week after. Uh, The Old Testament trajectory is that a day will come when the Lord will return to his people because at this particular point in Israel's history, in fact, at many points in Israel's history, they were actually harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. They were hemmed in on all sides. The enemies of God were attacking them. They were a small and fragile people. They were... What did they need? They actually needed saving. And the means by which God would do that would he would judge the enemies of his who were also causing strife for his people. That's what's looked forward to. And that's what's picked up in this particular point here that at the end times, the last great day when the Lord returns and the people are saved, it will be a time when those who are in continual rebellion against God, they will be held to account for what they've done. So you see it there in chapter 1 verse 10 rescues from the coming wrath and in chapter 5 verse 9 God did not appoint us that is those who are his to suffer wrath now this particular point is just worth as a bit of an aside saying well surely that's not the God of the Bible surely God's not the angry God God's the loving God interesting I was reading my quiet time this morning a passage in numbers and it's interesting sometimes how the Lord just speaks to you through his word and I thought actually I can use that in the talk this morning this afternoon numbers chapter 14 verse 8 the Lord is slow to anger abounding in love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. That's the God of the Bible that everybody wants, isn't it? But shall we just read the last part of the verse as well? But he will not clear the guilty. Notice the picture of God? Slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but will not clear the guilty. If you stand guilty before God... You will not go unpunished, actually. That's what it's saying. But here, the Lord will be slow in His anger, abounding in love, forgiving that iniquity, that transgression against Him. Who is this God? Friends, this is the Christian God, the God of the Bible. We see this picked up in some parts of Scripture in the New Testament. Uh, Maybe 1 Timothy 2 would be a one if you're writing notes. God, our Saviour, who wants or desires all people to be saved. God's desire is that everybody is saved on that last great day. And what is the thing that motivates him? Ephesians 2.4, because of his great love for us. Friends, this is the Christian God, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and that is on offer this very day, today, this afternoon. Not just an Old Testament thing, but on offer today. But if you are guilty before him, you will not be cleared, unless your transgression can be forgiven. So how do we see this unpacked in 1 Thessalonians? Well, turn with me to the letter. Uh, But firstly, a little bit of background. Go back to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we read this. This is the story of the early start of the church at Thessalonica. So Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. Uh, When they, this is Paul and his little band, who are travelling through uh, sort of the the area of Greece, current-day Greece, when they'd passed through Amphipolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. 
As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men, who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So Paul turns up to this place, this city of Thessalonica. I'll show you some slides. I've had the good fortune of being there. So come next week, I'll show you some happy snaps. Uh, well, it fits better with next week's talk rather than this week's talk. Paul is there for only three Sabbaths. Now, it may have been that he was there for three consecutive weeks and then left. That's the only period of time he was there for. Or it may have been that actually he was there for a bit longer in terms of total duration, but he was only in the synagogue on three Sabbaths. Don't lose sight of the point. He's there for barely any length of time. Notice what he's doing. He's reasoning, explaining and proving from the Old Testament here that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. That the man, Jesus, is this Christ foretold in the Old Testament and as a result the claim about this man Jesus causes a riot. I love the way the ESV translates verse 5. They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. Imagine heading down to the marketplace, I'm after some bad characters. You want to come with me? I want to start a riot. The claim about Jesus causes a riot. Now imagine if we as a little sort of social experiment all got up right now and walked out onto Eastern Avenue. It's okay, we're not going to do it. All right. And I asked for a volunteer. Anyone want to be a volunteer? Just stick your hand up. Yeah, well, Radman. I say to Radman, we've all come out onto Eastern Avenue, here's a milk crate, stand up and declare that Jesus is the Christ. So Radman would probably be com quite comfortable doing that, wouldn't you? <laughs> the nod wasn't quite quick enough. I suspect no one would care. I don't think it would start a riot. Most people would just walk past. I mean, they wouldn't be able to hear because they've got the headphones in anyway. And they'd see all of us. Anyone wearing an EU shirt? <coughs> you yeah, Okay, full marks for you yeah. Today's wearing an EU shirt. They'd probably go, these crazy Christians are out doing something on Eastern Avenue. It's got something to do with Jesus. Who cares? Just keep walking. But notice what happens to Paul. He's there for barely any, any period of time. And who starts the riot? Notice it's not Paul who starts the riot. It's the people who take his message with great offence that start the riot. What's the claim that Paul's making? Jesus is king. And then he leaves. So imagine Radman out on Eastern Avenue. We all go out there. Massive riot starts. I don't really know what that looks like. Um, and Radman goes, okay, see you later, I'm gone. Well, this is what Paul does. He leaves this very early infant church. But he's so concerned for them that he then writes to them in, one Thessalonians, in, in the letter to the Thessalonians. So from Acts chapter 17 and 1 Thessalonians... We read that the people of the, church, of the city of Thessalonica received the word of God with such power that they turned to God from the worship of idols. You see there in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. The Christian gospel, friends, when rightly proclaimed, has at its heart this message that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. It's a message by its very nature. The word gospel is not a Christian word particularly, 
It's just a word that means great proclamation. But here, the gospel, the great proclamation about Jesus is that he is both Lord and Christ. That not only did he die, but he's risen again. And these words have great power. Notice the impact, notice the type of power they come with in verse 5. The words changed people's lives. They hear the word, not just as a word from a man, it's not man's word, although Paul as a man spoke the word, but even later on in the letter, he recognises that it's not his word, it's God's word that he is declaring. No, they hear it as the word of God. And the word in its power brings change. I don't know if your words are very powerful, but God's words are immensely powerful. Just think through some of the times in which God speaks and things happen. With a word, creation comes into existence. Okay, that's a pretty powerful word. The change that was wrought in these Thessalonians, because of this word that was spoken, is that the people turn to God to serve Him. The change comes about not only with a word, but with the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being the one who enables the hearts of people to be changed, that the word of God would be received within them. That's what Paul does. No social engineering, no other laws to construct, no sort of social framework that people now have to agree to. Paul stands up and declares Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Interesting, isn't it, that some people, even atheists, think that the Word of God has power. Let me give you an example. Last year, July last year, in Queensland, that's the state just to the north of us, apparently every Australian in Queensland is winning a gold medal. That's what I hear at the moment. Australia's won hundreds, if not thousands, of gold medals at the Commonwealth Games. So successful has it been. Anyway, this is what the Department of Education in Queensland tried to do last year. This is an article from The Australian, which I'm quoting, July 2017. Quote, talking about Jesus, exchanging Christmas cards and encouraging Christianity has been targeted under an unofficial policy from education bureaucrats that takes aim at junior evangelists in Queensland primary schools. Queensland education officials have moved to ban references to Jesus in the primary schoolyard. Now, by junior evangelists, they don't mean mean the people who have only done like two or three training courses in evangelism and are out practising. We're talking nine and ten-year-olds here. That's what they mean by junior evangelists. Notice what the Department of Education was fearful of. The talking about Jesus was somehow powerful or dangerous or harmful. So what did they try and do? They tried to actually ban speaking about Jesus. Uh, This is not some country 30 or 40 years ago. This is the state just to the north of us, Queensland. Now, you can make the jokes about Queensland politics later. (laughs) But notice what's going on here. Even the atheists recognise that the Word of God is powerful. The Thessalonians recognised this. They heard the Word of God and it changed them radically. And what a message, notice there in verse 6 that even with the ongoing threat of persecution, possibly to the point of being imprisoned or the removal of worldly goods, or maybe even the loss of their life, the Thessalonians, on weighing these consequences and hearing the word of the Lord, were convicted that the word was true and they turned to God. They've been convicted that Jesus is the one who will save them from the wrath to come. Now, I think sometimes when we cast a vision for the future, we look at some of the injustices that go on in the world and we say, I really hope that one day that will all be dealt with. 
We look at the anger of some towards others. In our hearts, we cry out for judgment. It's a future-orientated cry that actually demands justice now. We rightly feel that there needs to be a solution. Well, friends, this is just symptomatic of humanity's greatest problem. We actually don't always get on with everybody and it's because we actually are out of relationship fundamentally with God. And it's a major problem for humanity because, well, we can't fix the problem ourselves. We don't know how long we've got until God seeks to resolve the problem and come and deal with this rebellion, finally. But we know that that will be a certainty. See, our physical death is just an indication of the spiritual and eternal death that faces us in our natural, rebellious, unforgiven state before this God who is slow to anger abounding in love and offers forgiveness. And we all, both individually and corporately, stand before him until we actually accept the forgiveness that he offers. I think when you consider this and try and step back a little bit and consider, is God appropriately angry? Well, if you're not sure, come and have a talk to me. But I think if you know that this is the nature of who God is, And when you consider the way in which we treat him, I think his actions are entirely justifiable. So what is God's reasonable response? Well, sometimes the magnitude of the solution offers a glimpse into the magnitude of the problem. As far as I can tell, the American government has spent nearly a trillion dollars, yes, a trillion dollars, on the ongoing war that was in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, whether or not you think that's good or bad, you can debate the politics later, but don't miss the point of the illustration, the size of the response a trillion dollars, indicates how significant someone thought the problem was. Is the death of the Son of God an unreasonable response to the problem of God's anger that needs to be dealt with? Well, God doesn't dismiss this problem. He doesn't just forget about it. He will not let the guilty go clear. He needs to deal with the rebellion. And so what does he do? He comes up with the solution for us by sending Jesus. Jesus is the one on whom all of his anger rests. That forgiveness might be possible. So what we see taking place within this particular group of people who make up this early church actually embodies what Christians would call the nature of conversion. Four broad things. We see that the gospel, this grand proclamation concerning Jesus is declared. Secondly, we see the proclamation is that Jesus is the Christ as declared in the Old Testament, that he died, that he rose and that he is returning to save his people from the wrath to come. Thirdly, that this gospel message, this great proclamation comes in word comes in power and with a work of the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, that those chosen by God respond to the message. They turn to God from serving idols. And then the word that they've received then sounds forth from them. This is the essence of conversion. It's both the turning to God, but also the serving. See, as Paul rightly points out, conversion is more than just recognising that God has done a great thing for you. Hey, God, that's fantastic. Thanks for saving me. I'm just going to get over here and keep worshipping my idols. That's not what's going on here, actually. Conversion is more than just simply turning around. It involves continually moving in a trajectory of life that is pleasing towards God. How does Paul indicate that this has taken place? Well, as you look through verses 4 to 9, one of the things that you see here is that Paul shows them that conversion is a work of God. It is God choosing the Thessalonians 
as a result of being chosen, they're in a position that they're able to receive the word and turn to God. So the question I want you to just think about for the next week as we work our way through Thessalonians is this. Have you been converted? You might say, well, sure, I've been at church all my life. I always called myself a Christian. Some might say, well, I ticked a box on a card a couple of years ago. Yep, I've been converted. Some might say, well, actually, hearing about what conversion is, maybe I'm not too sure anymore, actually. So I just want you to ponder this this week. Have you recognised that you were serving idols and you've sought to turn to God? Have you put aside the serving and worship of idols? Do you do so day by day in a continual fashion? Have you had this powerful work of the Spirit in your life? If you're not quite sure exactly what that means, then you know what, we've got a five-day conference coming up in the last week of the... Do you now live a life of faith which honours God at every opportunity? How has this particular word, the word that the Thessalonians received, that comes to us today as we read it, how has that demonstrated its power over your life? Have you been confronted by the challenges that it declares to you? The offence that it causes? For friends, we just need to keep owning up to this. The message of the gospel is offensive. And the reason why is, before we talk about everybody else, let's talk about ourselves. The message of the gospel is offensive because it shines a light on our own personal behaviours, our own personal ambitions, our own personal desires and dreams and vision for the future. And sometimes when we look at what we are, who we are, what we hope we will become in light of the gospel, we get offended. Which is why sometimes we push back a bit on God and say, you can have most, but I just want this little bit. Friends, that's the gospel causing offence in your life. And it does so also publicly. Just look at the Israel Full Hour stuff going on. Look at the offence it's caused. Very happy to have a conversation about his manner and whether or not it was appropriate, and, but let's not lose sight of the point. The gospel causes offence. And so today, as you hear this word, what emotion does it provoke for you? Apathy? Boredom? Maybe a bit of resistance? Or does it actually produce godly remorse, joy, hope, excitement? Friends, the Lord is returning. Has it brought conversion? For friends, we all serve something. We all seek to live up to something or someone. The desires and expectations of our parents, our personal hopes and goals for life. But friends, can I just say, the service of idols is a terrible bondage. For our idols will not listen. They have no ears to hear. Rather, we speak to them in the hope that they will. Our idols are unable to speak. They can't tell us what to do. They're mute. So we listen to whatever other voices are out there. Our idols will never fully satisfy. What power do they have? Friends, next time you're tempted to follow after some idol, whatever it is, just remember this. When has an idol ever brought someone back from the dead? What is more powerful? The word of the idol or the word of the true and living God? (coughs) So in terms of trying to cast a vision for your life, three broad things to finish. Firstly, reminder from verse 4. You are chosen and loved by the God of the universe. I suspect your generation has been told you are special since the day you were born. But can I just suggest we need to keep recalibrating that a little bit? You are special, friends, not explicitly because of who you are. No, you're actually special is because, 
because the God of the universe loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. And when we hear this word of the gospel and are compelled to turn from the worship of our idols, it confirms in us that God loves us and has chosen us. This then is one aspect of a God-given vision for our life, that we are deeply loved, chosen by God, eternally secure and free from the wrath that is to come. And so now we wait. Secondly, your life is radically different from everyone else's. Verse 9. Being a Christian may cause offence to some, but please, 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 may it only cause offence because of the word of the gospel. Remember what it was that Paul declared, that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, Jesus is the Christ, and the claim about Jesus makes a change. And thirdly, verse 8, your life can be an example to others. Friends, if we've accepted this Jesus, then our life will be different from the rest of the world. And may, they, may that be a great vision and hope for others who are longing for security and certainty in this world. I'm going to hand back to Jack, who's going to pray for us. Dear God, help us to seriously desire your return, that we may be encouraged immensely by this, and it is here where those who follow you will be saved from your wrath. You are slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgive iniquity and transgression. And because of your Son, we can receive this. Help us to hear and receive your word like the Thessalonians. And for your word is powerful and can change us radically. To turn to you and to continually move our trajectory to a life that is pleasing to you. Amen. Amen.